Welcome to Cafecito, a podcast dedicated to fostering connection and empowerment within the Hispanic and Latin American community. We're going to get started today with our Cafecito with Ernie Perez. Ernie's the head of our tax practice uh, globally. And we uh, we were talking last week about how to make things different. We've done uh, we've tried a few different f- uh, formats with our different cafecito speakers, and wanted to try this uh, podcast kind of dialogue going back and forth. So uh, we'll turn it over now. Ernie, do you want to do just a, a quick introduction? I'll let you introduce yourself, then we can get into some of these discussions. Sure, sure. Thank you. First of all, thank you, uh, Ag, for uh, extending the invite to, to join you all. It's a it's a pleasure to be here, and, and I also. Uh, Commend you and and the, and and the rest of the team for what you've done over the past year. It's pretty amazing uh, the, what you guys have put together and and uh, some of the things you're thinking about. So, uh, kudos to you for taking the initiative. As a quick introduction, um, I've been with the firm for over 17 years, going close to 18 years now. I started my career. I grew up in South Florida, went to the University of Georgia, and uh, also went to Georgia State University for law school. Started my career in 1992 at Arthur Anderson. Thought I was going to stay there for the rest of my my career. Uh, made partner in 2001. I have the distinguished honor of being a member of the last class of partners uh, of Arthur Anderson. Made partner in September of 01, and I was out the door in May of 02. After the Enron debacle, joined Deloitte uh, for a couple of years, and then a partner that I really uh, worked very close with uh, at Anderson, who actually. Uh, was part of leadership uh, by the time Anderson imploded. Got to know Tony and Brian because, as many of you might know, it was Alvarez and Marcel who did the Arthur Anderson wind down when Anderson got into trouble. Got to know Tony and Brian, and um, in their infinite, infinite wisdom, mentioned to Bob Lowe, who was individual, why don't you come over and start a tax practice uh, at AM? Bob came over in 04, and um, he was somebody that I enjoyed working with. I went to Deloitte and uh, as a partner, and but um, I wanted to work with somebody who I respected, and um, he had a, a vision, a dream of creating something special, and came here uh, and been here ever since. Um, started my background is in really international tax, so I deal a lot I've, over the years. Dealt a lot with um, all parts of the world, Latin America predominantly, but also Europe and Asia. And uh, over time, I've had different uh, assignments and and. For the last seven years, I've been heading up the, the tax practice. Wonderful, thank you. And we have some uh, some discussions we want to have around that here soon, especially for those of us who don't know tax other than our annual federal tax return <laughs> that we dread, right? Yes. So, Ernie, you came to uh, Miami from Cuba as a child, and as you and I have discussed, that's near and dear to my heart because my mom mm-hmm. did the same thing. What was it like for you just maybe earlier on as a, on a personal level growing up as an immigrant in Miami or in the U.S.? I mean, overall, and then you like you said, you went on to live in Georgia as well. Sure, sure. You know, I, I came when I was uh, two uh, with my mother, single, single parent. And, you know, A.G., growing up, you know, you probably we felt like we owned this place, right? <laughs> That's how we felt it. But as you get older, you 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 realize what your immigrant upbringing really what it does and and sort of the foundation it it does to you but um i think my immigrant upbringing is a big part of who i am in terms of for example when i was growing up we came over a lot of families came after so my house was always full of family members that were coming from cuba we would get close to we we would put them up you know give them room for a couple times until they got stable uh saw that hard work and determination so that that was ingrained with me but it really didn't hit me until I went to the University of Georgia, um, and I'll, no, I'll never forget this. I was at the University of Georgia. Keep in mind, I went to Georgia in the 80s. There were still KKK marches in, in Stone Mountain, by the way, um, and uh, Forsyth County. But one of my good friends that I met as a freshman was um, a black man, um, Fred Anderson, from Milledgeville, Georgia. And Fred, Fred and I became, you know, good friends. We were both in school business. He was in finance. I was in economics. And I remember, I remember um, talking about what we wanted to do, what we were aspiring for. And him and I both wanted to go to law school. And I, I sort of had my plans mapped out. This is what I want to do. And 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 one day he said to me, "How how can you talk with so much confidence?" And and it really caught me off guard because that's the only way I could talk. But I realized 
I realized where he came from. I also realized where I came from. And so to, to, your, to answer your question, my immigrant upbringing, growing up in Miami, gave me a, a confidence that that everything was achievable. And uh, that's what I've used uh, for my entire life. And, and I think that has helped me tremendously, you know, uh, further my career uh, over the years. Thank you. Yeah, and those there's I think there's a lot of people in HLA right now from Miami, and there's a lot of Cuba's strong country to have a presence there, but obviously lots of other countries like Venezuela and yeah. um, you know, Puerto Rico came. There's lots of, of groups Nicaragua, there that have contributed to absolutely. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're going to talk a little bit more about Miami in a second, but um, what I'm curious to see how much you remember just, just your recollections of how things happened when the the Mariel boat lift happened. I'm not trying to age you or date you, but you were around then, and then I was because there was there was the growth, and then there was Marielle, yeah. and then things kind of went went and came again, right? Yeah. Well, I remember. Um, so Marielle happened. I was 14, 13, 14 years old, and I remember getting in a car with uh, my my family and driving to Key West. And I still remember vividly as the boats were coming in to Key West, we we had our family members there, and we went to pick them up. Um, some of them went to detention centers. We had some family that actually were sent to uh, Pennsylvania, others to detention centers in in in, uh, in Florida. But uh, we basically housed a lot of our our family members and and uh, and helped them help them get their footing and, and and basically get them going. What people may or may not remember is that when Castro released the, allowed for the folks to come, he also emptied his prisons. He emptied the prisons and basically put. The folks, not only the prisons, but also the the hospitals where you had uh, mentally impaired individuals. So all those folks came to to South Florida. And if you look at the the early 80s, besides the drug trafficking and everything else, you know, South Florida. I still remember there's a Time magazine cover uh, of Miami called Paradise Lost, and uh, and because of some tourists that were here from from Europe that they got killed. So. Miami in the mid to early 80s um, was uh, a, a place that was pretty crazy. And it wasn't until George Bush, the, the father, really got cracked, started cracking down on, on, on the drug, uh, drug cartel and drug business down here that things started to change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I was very young when that happened, but I remember hearing and I remember them calling them the Marielitos, right? Were the ones Marielitos, that came yeah. on the boat yeah. lift and they, yeah. Yeah. that was definitely a negative, uh, a negative connotation. Yeah, it was not. It was not so, said out of out of uh, endearment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a term of endearment. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> so going into a little more into the professional world now. Uh, for most people, taxes are paired with death, right? <laughs> yeah. But when when you were interviewed by Hispanic executive, you said you knew you had found your thing when you took your first tax class in law school, yeah. and uh, I'm sure that's probably surprising to a lot of people, especially like an engineer like me. Uh, could you talk about that? Had you thought about being a different type of attorney? Did that change you? How, what was that process like? Yeah, so, you know, I think, you know, I'm passionate about tax, so I think tax gets a bad rap. But if you think about tax um, and you think about, I was an econ major, right, before I went to law school. So if you think about it, tax is about problem solving. So not that dissimilar from an engineer. So when you, when you have a tax problem, it really makes you be creative and think about how do I solve it? And then you have your facts and you have the law. And then is the law in your favor or are the facts in your favor? And how can you basically do it? And in our case, you know, we most of us on the call probably think of tax as, you know, your 1040s, right? But most of our clients, all of our corporate clients, private equity clients have to navigate not only through U.S. tax, but taxes in all sorts of jurisdictions, which, which comes into play with supply chain, manufacturing centers, repatriation of profits, allocation of capital. So what I enjoyed about tax all these years is the problem solving aspect of it, because you're really helping create value to your clients by making sure that the capital gets um, put to use in the most effective manner and, and, and then deploy it and then use it in whether it's manufacturing, whether it's creating jobs, whether it's, you know, getting back to the community. So I always tell our people in the tax, you're part of, you, you play a big part in capital markets because part of your job, it's not just to save people money. It's basically, to make sure capital is deployed in a very efficient manner. It's interesting where you say that, because as you're talking about it, I remember an engineering class I took called operations research, where you have a set of parameters that give you constraints and you have to find a solution to operate within those constraints. That sounds a lot like the, 
the kind of problems you're solving. I got advice, by the way. I got advice a long time ago from somebody, one of my teachers, that he said, Ernie, when the law's on your favor, pound table with the law. If the facts um, are in your favor, pound the table with with the facts. And if either the facts and the law are not in your favor, just pound the table and start screaming loud. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll win the argument that way. <laughs> and, uh, I've tried that before at home, and that's probably not the right place to do no, that. No, no, it doesn't work with the law. It doesn't work with the law. Yeah. <laughs> So when you, when you had originally gone to law school, had you you didn't you weren't sure what kind of law you wanted to practice? What was your plan originally going in there? I knew I knew I wanted to do some some sort of business, some sort of business law. So um, so I, I, first year of law school, you take required courses. So really, second year is when you start taking your electives and um, took corporate law, took securities law, took commercial paper, and then I took a tax course and um, tax one out. It, 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 uh, I, to be honest with you, AG had to do with a professor. The professor was probably one of the best professors I had who just made the class interesting. So we got into class, it was problem solving, it was thinking outside the box, it was arguments as to why, what kind of position, is it policy? So all, 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 all that created uh, a favorable impression. And then I, I, after my second year, I clerked with the chief counsel's office of the IRS and, and that furthered my, my interest in, in the tax world. And that just opens up so many more jokes that you actually worked at the IRS, but we'll, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's good to know. I think, I think that really helps out for a lot of people and a lot of us, just as we're people that are still making decisions for their careers. But then also uh, one of the big things that I've been trying to uh, sell and market for HLA is those of us that have a better understanding of the other practices and the other capabilities that we have at A&M, we're going to be able to be that much stronger because then we can collaborate, right? And that's one of the things I want to try to do with HLA is give us exposure to people in different practices with different skill sets that they might not otherwise come in contact with, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Makes sense. Yeah. So can you talk about the evolution of A&M? Uh, you were asked by, you know, Tony and Brian to, to start the practice through your connections when you met them through, through Arthur. What? How has it evolved in the 17 years that you've been here, in terms of you know yeah. starting from where you were and where it is now globally? Yeah, it, when you go when you go back, you know when I started. Just, I'm gonna put this in perspective. I started. Uh, the firm was. We'll probably do close to three billion dollars this year. The firm, uh, two eight to three billion globally. Well, we have about 6,100 people, maybe 6,500 people by the end of the year, and. About two thirds of our revenue are U.S. based, and about a third are outside the United States. When I started, the whole firm was $100 million, and we had about 500 people. And 99.9% .9 of the revenue were restructuring NACA revenue, and 99.9% .9 of the revenue was earned in the United States. Just to put that in perspective, right? What it was. But if you go back to that time frame, Sarbanes-Oxley had come out. It created a lot of dislocation in the marketplace. And Tony and Brian, to their credit. Um, you know, saw the opportunity to get into the tax business, get into what was called then business consulting or CPI, corporate forms room today. Um, eventually in 2006, got into the transaction advisory business, got into the DNI business, right? And, and, and so forth. So, um, so think about it in the context of, you know, you have a restructuring practice that's been around for, for, for a long time. Every other business was nascent, just trying to grow. Forget about cross-selling. Forget about working together. We were just trying to build a business, so it created just you know tunnel vision to create your business. And it, it was, when I look, when I reflect on that time, it was a lot of fun, but we weren't doing a lot of cross collaboration. And the first seminal moment that happened for the firm was Lehman Brothers, a financial crisis of 0607, because it was really a seminal moment because the firm couldn't handle all the work unless it brought people from tax. We had 30 people in the Lehman Tax Department running the Lehman Tax Department, bringing transaction advisory folks to help unwind Lehman's private equity business, bringing business consulting folks to help out, bringing DNI folks to help out. So it was really what the first time the firm realized that what we're building here has synergies beyond just having you know separate practices. So that was a big moment which allowed us all to grow. And so as the firm has grown, I think what has happened is that we, a lot of the practices have been able to mind the opportunities. So when you look at the tax practice today, uh, is about a 200 
globally is about a $230 million practice. And primarily US and UK, we're growing now in the Netherlands, we have um, Mexico, we have Brazil, and, and it's growing. 50% of our work comes from direct market penetration, and 50% comes from us collaborating with big A&M, whether it's restructuring, whether it's private equity, or whether it's, it's the corporate space. So I think that the firm has evolved. And, and by the way, I mentioned to you earlier that we'll probably do close to 3 billion. A third of those 3 billion are internal referrals. In other words, it's it's basically one division bringing another division in. So I think where the firm is today is really in a fantastic place. And when you ask the question, how has it evolved? Is it evolved now to the point where we're connecting the dots? And to your point earlier about finding out what people do, that's how we connect the dots. Because the one thing that our entrepreneur platform has been great for the growth, but one of our struggles is we keep adding talent every day and it's hard to keep up with the talent, what the talent, what the skill set the talent brings in. So we need to make sure that we know exactly who's coming in, what they do, because when we connect the dots, that that is when we really add value and, and, and do well in the marketplace. One of the first things when I started interviewing with AM that everyone mentioned to me was how entrepreneurial it was. And it was interesting because as I've been at the firm now for almost two years, folks have continued to say that. Like you have, I mentioned to you that when we heard Tony speak and we heard uh, Tom speak and everybody else, they said they were all saying the same thing. Is that something that happened because of the way that the firm started or do you think it's something that they that you guys really intentionally tried to maintain throughout the years to be able to keep that spirit at the company the whole time it's tony and brian i mean no doubt about it i i think that that was the culture that they came in mind with and that's the culture that they have basically instilled in all of us and i think if if you were to hear tony he he would tell you that one of one of the reasons why we've been so good is because of the consistency we've had the leadership team knowing each other you know being able to call each other and just the lack of bureaucracy right so if i need something if i have an idea or something i can call tony and, and you know take care of it in five minutes i might not get the answer i want but i'll get a result in five minutes so i think that that certainly comes from them they instilled it uh we appreciate it as leaders, and then we try to instill that in, in all of our folks. So they, they, they're they the ones that really deserve the credit for instilling that and keeping it here and making sure that we're not adding, you know, when, when Tony does a lot of the, when he does the reviews with division heads or Brian, one of the things they're trying to make sure is that you're not creating bureaucracy, make sure that you keep adhere to, to our, our core values and our principles, and they, they do a very good job of doing that. That was a great answer too, since we're recording it. We can always show them later that hey, Ernie's Ernie's consistent with the message, right? <laughs> <laughs> I knew that beforehand. Just kidding, just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you think that's gonna be hard to make let me rephrase that question? How hard is that gonna be to maintain and how do you see us maintaining that as we continue to get, you know, from a hundred million to your point to you know north of three billion? Yeah, listen, it's it's the biggest it's the biggest concern or challenge that we think we have is as we continue to grow. If if you look, if I go back to the, the global leadership meeting we had earlier this year with all the global leaders, we feel pretty comfortable that we can probably double in the next three or four years, and that doubling, a big chunk of that doubling will come from folks that are coming up the ranks, but also to capture that opportunity, we're going to have to need external hires. So how do you hire folks that share the same core values, share the same principles? So managing that is very important for us. Um, I got to tell you, from 500 that we were when I started to 6,500 today, I don't feel much of a difference. I still feel that we're nimble. I still feel that we can execute, you know, really quick. There, by by definition, you got to have more infrastructure, right? That, because the more you grow, you got to have some bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is a bad word, but you got to have some bureaucracy. So it's it's balancing that bureaucracy with 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 the growth that really is our biggest challenge. I think you can do it. Uh, we've we've been able to do it. And I think we've been able to do it because we've kept the structure lean. I mean, we're not creating layers and layers of, 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 of processes that we got to go through. Um, but certainly it, it becomes more challenging and you got to put some some rigor uh, behind behind the organization, especially when, you, when you're going, you know, listen, we just opened up an office in Australia, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia. And you know, Colombia just opened up recently. So you know, you're 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 growing. So you need to have some rigor to make sure that you maintain that. 
it almost seems like though, to your point, you want to be just a little bit below, a little bit, always a little light on the bureaucracy, right? Catching up, you're always catching up a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. great. So uh, I want to come back to Miami, where we talked about at the beginning for a little bit. Uh, recent article shows that Miami's venture capital pipeline has grown 400% in the last year. Yeah. And today it's being called the number one place in the world for tech job growth. What's it been like for you being in Miami watching this since 2020? And since we know um, some people may know Mayor Francis Suarez has had a big part of that. COVID yeah. is a part of that. And I want to hear, would love to hear what, what you've been seeing. Yeah, no, it's it's a, it's it's been a great story uh, watching it uh, and living in it now. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know if you saw the article that came out actually earlier this week on Bloomberg uh, on Ken Griffin. Did you see that article? We we were talking about it last week, but I didn't yeah. read the article yet. Yeah. yeah, so the article came out, Ken Griffin, talking about him and his view of Miami becoming Wall Street South, right? And uh, But I think going to your to your direct question, I'll share the article with you and, and you can share it with the team. But um, so they're, they're already what Miami had always been a place where flight capital came, right? But it wasn't permanent capital. It started changing even pre-COVID. You start seeing, for example, the tech, the tech hub that was really being created here in South Florida. Um, now it had its challenges because you didn't have the infrastructure, right? You didn't have the talent that you were seeing in Silicon Valley, the, the financial, the backing, the, you know, the BC type of banks weren't, weren't around. So, but you certainly saw that and you saw also some of the migration of folks coming down from up north uh, and making Miami their permanent place of, of, of residence. That picked up tremendously uh, during the COVID period. I mean, listen, you got Steve Cohen, 0.72 down here. You got, you, you mentioned, I mentioned uh, Ken Griffin. You have Founders Fund, right, uh, here now. Um, so um, you're, 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 you're seeing folks advocate, you know, this is the place to be. And it's not only Miami, it's Palm Beach, it's Boca, and it's Rolando. It's basically South Florida. Uh, you're seeing the law firms, Kirkland Ellis, Winston & Strong, Tilly Austin, major law firms that have never been here opening up basically their offices here. So uh, the question that people keep asking is, is it going to last? Is it permanent? And and uh, unlike any other time that I've seen, you know, Miami sort of prosper, um, I have a different feel for it here because it's going into infrastructure. You're seeing the talent come down here. Um, you know, you have those folks that sort of you know push against it because it's changing too rapidly but i think in terms of what we're seeing today it's pretty amazing pretty amazing in terms of the opportunities uh for firms like ours you know uh opportunities for tech to be a big part of of this uh economy uh asset management hedge funds uh private equity uh toma bravo uh toma bravo has basically moved down here as well so i mean it's just uh pretty incredible uh to 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 see it um and it was a favorable, a favorable climate. You, you saw the, um, I forget who it was that uh, Mayor Suarez basically said, "How can I help you?" Right, <laughs> and, and and that tweet. He has he has the socks that say, "How can I help you?" Yeah, right? how can I help yeah. you? And, and, and that's that's sort of the the mantra here. You know, uh, come down. How can I help you? Yeah. So Miami's always been a hub for Latin America in terms of like a portal into the U.S. Mm -hmm. How do you see that or not working with you know this? I want to use this term lightly, but it's funny you hear it a lot is the tech bros, right? Which is like yeah. the, the California type yeah. type of that product versus maybe more of like the, the imports and the kind of more South American things you see. How do you see that or not see that, you know, fitting yeah. together? Yeah. So so Miami, uh, you're right. But Miami was always more of a re the regional offices for, for here. You never had your headquarters here. So now you are seeing these funds, these asset managers established. So that's a that's a big part of it. And and Latin America by default because of where Miami sits is is a direct link with that. Now, what I'm seeing right now are a couple of things from an inbound perspective coming into the United States. I think we're all aware of everything going on in Latin America. I mean, geopolitically, you see the elections in Colombia, uh, you're seeing what's happening in Ecuador, Peru, uh, Brazil, Mexico. You're seeing the United States continues to be probably the safest place to put your money in. So you're seeing a lot of capital inflow uh, coming here. And that's creating a lot of opportunities for us. I mentioned to you that I recently recently hired in tax Alfonso Bayete, who was the head of KPMG's Latin American uh, tax practice. And he joined us and moved down to Miami. He was in New York. And so Alfonso is uh, building a team and, and, and really tapping into those opportunities. So we're seeing a lot of influx here. 
by the same time, by the same token, there was a great article today about the the increase in sales in EV cars in Brazil and in Latin America, but the infrastructure needs that you need there. So I think that Latin America, when looking at to invest, even though it's going through these cycles right now, you're still going to see opportunities, especially for firms like us, right? Because there's going to be a lot of workouts, a lot of trouble, but also a lot of opportunities to to pick up uh, clients that are picking up, uh, you know, potential uh, targets in jurisdictions. And then you have, the, you have the infrastructure space, which I think is, is really a strong space for, for, for Latin, in Latin America. I say that with one caveat, depending on how far these you know, geopolitical shifts occur, that could certainly have a really negative effect, right? So I think that's something to keep in mind, but I think it's, it's prime for, for a lot of you know, opportunities, both outflow, outbound going into Latin America, as well as inbound. And I think Miami is gonna play a huge role in, in that process going forward. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned EVs because being in the automotive practice, that's near and dear to my heart, right? And it's funny yeah. that you mentioned that because one of the challenges is price and distance um, are have been achieved really with the cars, but the charging, which is tied to the infrastructure, to your point, is still right. their one big variable that they haven't been able to, to get a hold of. That's right. So if, if we stick with that, that theme that you were talking about, what are you seeing just more broadly then in global markets uh, post-COVID? I know you said, obviously, the big concentration of yeah. business for a and tax is going to be in the States and in, and in Europe, but I know you have a pulse on everything else that's going on. Yeah. What have you been seeing uh, macroeconomically? Yeah, you know, on a macro level, well, if you look at it from our business, for example, uh, M&A private equity, you know, until recently, it, it has slowed down now, especially with the Fed's increasing, you know, uh, rates, but it's been really just going gangbusters ever since the summer of 2020. We haven't stopped. I mean, if you look at the numbers that our transaction advisory practice or PEPI practice and our tax M&A practice, it's just unbelievable. I think that's going to slow down a bit, that's a, you know, because of just the way things are. Um, I think restructuring is they're they're chomping at the bit for 2023. I think they're they're salivating at what this could look like for them in 2023. And then corporate spending could, could slow down because of interest rates. But from a geopolitical perspective, I don't know if you follow what the UK just did. They just passed a new act, which is meant to really stimulate um, demand in the UK with lowering taxes, trying to stimulate the economy. So each country now, Germany, France, Italy, the major players, the G7, they're going through their own internal struggles and they keep changing things. And by this, it creates a lot of uncertainty for our clients, which actually, believe it or not, helps us in helping them navigate through this uncertainty. Because a lot of our clients today are going through rapid change, as you know. And so the transformation is is really happening at a quick pace. And at the same time, most of these jurisdictions, these countries are changing a lot of their policies. So we're seeing a lot of uh, activity from clients that want to understand what are the ramifications uh, if this policy would go through in the UK, or if this policy would go through in Germany, or if this policy happens in Latin America. So a lot of geopolitical stuff. Um, I mean, if you look at the forecasting, Europe doesn't look good. We're talking about stagflation in Latin America for the most part. So I think that um, your, your guess is as good as mine as to whether this is going to be a soft landing, hard landing, medium landing. You know, I keep talking about that. But a lot of uncertainty and 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 you know and geopolitical issues are really around the world. You know, it's interesting that that's one of the great things about consulting is uncertainty for everybody else usually translates into certainty for us. That's right. <laughs> but that's right. But especially for us because of restructuring, right? I've heard a lot of people at the firm say that rest our restructuring practice is kind of our secret weapon. Secret weapon because a lot of the restructuring that's done is done by more boutiqueish firms, and so bigger firms can't pivot to that kind of work when the, the restructuring work comes, right? They just have to cut and strip. So it's there, there's no firm out there. There's no firm out there, whether you look at the big four or whether you look at the MBBs, there's no firm out there that has the perfect hedge that we do during good times and not so good times, you know? Um, and then the, the beauty of it is that restructuring um, during bad times, there are stuff that the rest of the practice can piggyback off of that, right? Because you 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 are unwinding companies, you are selling pieces of companies, so that brings your transaction advisory, brings your tax, it brings your corporate consulting. So, um, and then the focus that the focus the firm undertook over the last five years, uh, focusing on industry, right? Uh, 
your your automotive industrial consumer, uh, I think that's going to bode very well uh, as things continue to unfold. Yeah, no, they're they're very Tony and Brian have been very strategic as they've set up those those different verticals. So in terms of uh, preparing for the future, uh, we you and I talked about this a little bit last week. How do you see young talent? And by young, I would say, you know, let's say early career, five years or less, as well as Hispanic talent, which would be all levels as, as target demographics for recruiting. Like the, what, what is the value you see in each of yeah. those maybe separately? Yeah, no, I see, listen, young talent, um, you know, when you look at, when we look at our, our, our strategy, you have on-campus recruiting and you have experience recruiting. I mean, and it, it might differ a little bit among division, but it's critical, I think, for, for, all, for all divisions. And, and certainly it's a big part of our process. Now, um, I think the challenge we have with everybody else is onboarding these, these individuals, but making sure how do you develop their careers? How do you make sure they stay here? And how do you make, how do you make sure they progress, okay? Uh, with respect to Hispanics, I, I, my, my personal view is I think we do a decent job of recruiting them from school. I think when you look at over a long period of time, they start falling off during the process. I think we got to do a better job of making sure they see a career track here that they're motivated and can stay. And I think that's something that certainly on, on our part, and it's not Hispanics only. I can say the same thing about, about about females, you know, women. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do better to make sure that we keep them here and we 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 work with them on their progression going forward, because we do a good job of bringing them to the door. I think we got to do a better job of of keeping them and working with them as their year as their career progresses. Yeah, and that's something that HLA would love to be a part of. So hopefully we can yeah. continue to do that. And, you know, we were talking about secret weapons. That's one of the things I love about HLA is that a lot of us speak other languages, right? So that's kind of like our little secret weapon is our ties to uh, Latin America and the different countries. No, I think I think HLA as well as other, you know, um, resource groups are a huge part of, you know, working with the talent that we bring in and experienced hires as well. Experienced hires that, that you know, keeps them here and helps, you know, develop them uh, over their career. Yeah. Um, I, I dug up another interview from one time, and you said that recruits have to have integrity, passion, and intelligence. And I wanted yeah. to ask you, are those in order on purpose, and why? Yeah, I, I think I think when you look at our business, it's all about our reputation. I mean, you know, we don't we're not manufacturing a widget and manufacturing a product. I think that um, it's all about you know your integrity, your reputation, and I think that could be lost very easily in in our world. I mean, and so I make sure to no, same way I tell my my kids, you know, one, you know, one thing could really set you back tremendously. I tell our, our people as well as that. I mean, a lot of our people are, are dealing with confidential information. Uh, they're dealing with, uh, you know, with um, with things that um, if left to, you know, uh, a different mindset could be used in, in, in a not not a very, you know, ethical matter. So I think integrity is is huge. I mean, you you see it today when you think about A&M and people talk about Tony and Brian, I think they've created a firm where they have tremendous following because of their integrity and, and the reputation that they build over time. Passion, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know how you do this. You know, I believe it or not, September 16th of uh, this year was my 30th year anniversary of getting into this profession. Okay, I walked into those double doors at Arthur Anderson on September 16, 1992. Okay, so um, to do it as long as, you know, I mean, to me, you have to be passionate at whatever you do and you have to love what you do. And I think one of the things that I've enjoyed over my career has been, it's challenging, it's demanding, as we all know, right? We got to travel and everything else, but each client is different. You meet different people, uh, the connections and the, and, and the relationships. So you got to have passion and what you do. And then, you know, the mindset has to be of, you know, to me, you, you have to have that mindset of solving problems and, and working things. That's that's how we add the value. So that that ability to to think uh, I always tell I always tell people it's OK to bring me a problem, but I want you to bring me potential solutions, even if those solutions are basically far, you know, <laughs> they don't make any sense. I want to see that you thought about how I break this down and, and solve the issue. So those to me are, are sort of the critical, you know, you have other ones like emotional intelligence and, and, and everything else. But I think that problem solving mindset 
uh, and passion uh, tied with integrity. I, I think if you think of every successful professional you see out there, I think you'll see all three of them in them. That's great. I, I, I only say that because a lot of people would think, oh, well, intelligence should be first, right? Because you have to know what you're doing. But I, I, I love that explanation of the order. Okay, I got one more quote with you for you, and then we're going to turn over some time for folks on the on the call to ask questions. But this is a quote I have from you. A good partner is one that makes partners. Do you want to comment on that? Absolutely. I, that's, I, I learned that uh, very early on in my career. Um, there's nothing that gives me the most pleasure than seeing our people grow. And I think that uh, it's our, I think it's, I grew up in an organization where stewardship, in other words, leave the organization in a better place when the time comes for you to leave. And you can't do it overnight, so you got to build it. So I think that the, you know, um, a sign of a good partner is one that has made partners, because I think in doing that, there's self, there's, there's coaching, there's mentoring, selflessness, because um, you don't make partner unless I think you're some 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 selfless because you know it, it means you know the the pie ha you, you're making a partner to be a creative but at the same time um, you're 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 giving up something um, and, and so I, I think I think that we uh, feel very strongly about that that uh, a sign of a good partner is one that makes partners. Same with the intelligence right you would think sometimes a good partner is one that just beats everybody up right you don't think about about right. lifting others right it's counterintuitive yeah yep. okay well thanks ernie for that so far well we'd love to have anyone on the call that has any questions for ernie to go ahead and um you can uh, raise your hand or come off mute and we can you guys can jump in the conversation here or you can put something in the chat if you're too shy to uh raise any questions okay alejandro posted the bloomberg article thank you alejandro uh, about um, about Ken Griffin. Ken Griffin, thank you. Yes. Yeah, that's a good article. It's a good article. Yeah, Andres, you had a question. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll kick it off. How's it going? Thanks, Ernie, for for uh, doing the cafecito. I'm sorry I wasn't able to join on in the Miami trip. COVID got me last week. Apologize for that. We'll do it again. <laughs> we'll do it again. We'll do it again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Next time. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about. Uh, marketing. So you you heard AG mention we're trying to set up marketing with HLA. I believe when I open my LinkedIn, you're the guy that always pops up. You seem to pay a lot of attention to marketing. At a personal level, do you think we as as a uh, as we're growing in our career, do you think it's an important tool that we should be paying attention to? Uh, just the posts. I know HLA. It's it's a powerful tool that we should be using and we're going to try to use, but at a personal level, what are you, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I, when I, first of all, um, I want you to understand that it's not just me that's posting those things. So I do have a team that, that makes me look good. Okay, first of all, number one, uh, I got to be fair to the team, which uh, you run a mentioned. practice, so I would imagine yeah, exactly. that. <laughs> so they, they do a good job. But, you know, when we started um, initially, uh, if you, I don't know if you know Paul Arisano. Paul really started this, and then it was Nick uh, Alvarez, uh, Tony Three, and myself who, who joined sort of the the, the process. I, I debated whether to jump on the wagon or not, and and what got me comfortable was I didn't want to make it about myself. I don't want to make it. I didn't want to make it about my own personal brand. I wanted to make it about the practice. So what I agreed to, even though sometimes I'll put a. a, a to put a picture of my daughter and me or take my daughter to school. I wanted to use the platform to talk about job openings. I wanted to use the platform to, to spotlight people who are joining us so others can see, wow, look at the caliber of people joining us. I wanted to use it as a recruiting tool. I wanted to use it um, as a, a branding of the firm and the tax practice, or we collaborate together of the tax practice and somebody else. So I, I do think it's an important thing because I think if if you stay at it, um, you'd be surprised how many people you know come to me and say, "I saw that LinkedIn uh, post," and I'm like, "Which one?" <laughs> you know, but 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 it, it does. I think it does. And 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 AG and I talked about it uh, in Miami. I I actually introduced them to the person who heads up our marketing uh, to get some pointers about how we can sort of do do some of the things you, you guys are thinking about HLA. And in a way to piggyback some, you know, some of the things the firm is already doing, so you don't have to recreate the wheel. So okay. I, I think it's an important part. I think it's an important part. Um, and um, 
but I, I think about it in terms of the business, not 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 me personally. Yeah, no, I I would second that as well. I I do a poor job myself, and I I think it's an important tool that we can easily take advantage of. You mentioned uh, for I mean we don't manufacture a product; it's the people, and if if the external folks are seeing positive um, networking, uh, it's it's just a powerful tool that we can use to our advantage for sure. And HLA, yes, we will get on that. I know it's a it's high on our to do list, and I appreciate the the contact that you you set us up with. So so we'll yeah. work on that. And I think you bake it. You if you bake it, we're like you know. Uh, I think you mentioned early on, uh, AG about uh, about the recruiting event you had recruiting event you had recently i think if you use it from that perspective it can help recruiting it can help pretend i mean there's a lot of ways that that can be used to to really further you know uh everything we're trying to do here yeah thanks ernie thank you thank you antonio are you i see you raising your hand hey thanks hi ernie how are you hey antonio um, um, I wanted just to 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 have the thoughts about how to reduce the the strategic on part on trying to reduce the white space and usually how those the Hispanic community can get into that and also how it's linked to the Latin America um, uh, perspectives. I'm sorry, Antonio, I missed the first part of it. Uh, what did you say? The white space, uh, the the how, how we can join more the the spaces between different practices and oh yeah the, yeah, yeah. yeah no I, I think um i think i mentioned earlier that uh, it's probably um our uh, collectively our biggest challenge to to know one another I, I think what i what we do a lot when we bring in partners i think we should do it across the board is in the first 90 days who who are the people that you need to meet um, you know, within the tax practice, who are the people you need to meet outside the tax practice and what divisions, given your skill set and background. I think that's that's the best uh, one of the best practice approach in terms of who are the folks. Uh, so if you're in digital or you're, you're working in digital, you meet the folks, you know, across the board. You're working in a certain industry, meet the folks in a certain industry. Um, but again, that's no I think you got to continue doing that after the 100 days and, and just be be purposeful and intentional about okay you know who are we uh you can ask me you can ask some of the partners you know what things are going on i think we can do a better job by the way i i know for a fact that cpi is coming out with a skills tracker that a lot of us are picking back uh on that and that skills tracker is, is meant to give you a you know a profile of all of our people and what they do I think that'll go a long way because I think you can search that whether it's a, a particular need that you see or you might see a trend. Okay, how strong is the firm in automotive in Latin America? Oh, you might stumble into AG, right, and have a conflict with AG. So I, I think that there's certainly things that we can do to make it easier for our folks, and we're working on that. But the other thing I would say, um, be thoughtful. More than happy to sit down with you if you have a particular space that you think is important, um, and connect the dots. Also, Antonio, you can join our professional community committee. Uh, Lucas will be happy to give you more information about that if you want to. <laughs> okay, excellent. <laughs> All right, thank you. Okay, what other questions do we have out there for Ernie? He told me anything's fair game, so you can. Anything's fair game. We'll see. If I have to censor it, I will. <laughs> Hi, Ernie. Nice to meet you. Thank you for your time. I'm new at uh, A&M. I'm actually two months in in the CRG business unit. Really mm -hmm. enjoy my time here. And my question is uh, related to the massive expansion that A&M in general is having uh, in terms of headcounting, increasing the numbers, et cetera. What do you think would be the best way to keep increasing HLA's effort in basically interconnecting and connecting the different business unit leaders so that we can form not, not just, uh, let's say, CRG, DNI groups, but like an HLA, A&M group. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great, first of all, welcome, welcome to the firm and um, glad to have you on board. I think that's a great question. I, I, I um, my thoughts on that, and I'm thinking and talking at the same time, my thoughts on that is, um, and sitting down with AG last week, I think the foundational, what is it you want to be? And I think um, what I like about 
uh, you're very intentional in terms of business development, recruiting, and community, right? Those are the three pillars that you're focused on, which is great. Then how do you then tap into each of the business units of the firm um, and have sort of a pipeline of understanding what's coming in, right? The talent that's coming in and, and how we can do that. Um, and maybe start with a couple of the units and get that process, you know, really smooth. Um, you also got to be careful how much you take on too. So the, the sequencing and the cadence of this is going to be very important. But I think that as, as new units come on board and we're going to continue adding new units. I mean, for example, digital is like, you know, going gangbusters now, you know, AIG continues to grow. CRG is continuing to grow. I think that who can be that ambassador, right? Or that link that identifies. Um, now I will tell you, there is, um, I mentioned, I mentioned Patrick Honey to UAG. Patrick Honey is a partner of ours uh, who basically was the first one from the ground up to do um, one of our initial groups, which is A&M1. And he's done just a fantastic job of, you know, creating sort of a, a, a network, if you will, of Knacker, CPI, Pepe, TAG, et cetera. And really, you just need one, one person that can really take it from there. But I, I think that, you know, having your foundation uh, strong and then uh, how, how, do you, how do you have a representative, you know, from each of the units that can basically be your, your sponsor, if you will, or um, lead the charge or be the, the cheerleader in, in that particular group? I think it's the, the thoughts that come to mind. Alejandro, congratulations. You're officially the CRG representative. I've anointed you. <laughs> no, no, thank you. I, I actually, I think that's a great idea, Ernie. I think if we can have maybe like co-chairs or ambassadors, let's call it, in mm -hmm. every single business unit, because when I speak to the Brazilians, the Latin Americans in CRG, some of them have never even heard of it. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm two minutes in the firm. How can you, you're like five years in the firm or three years in the firm and you haven't heard of it. So I think having those ambassadors will be critical. I think, I think, I think it's one of the best kept secrets, to be honest with you. I think it's, I think HLA, you know, one of the things that, you know, um, AG and I talk about is how, how do you get that word out there? I mean, how do, how do we, within the firm, how do we get it out there and all the things that we're doing? Because it's a, it's a great story of, of what we're doing and what we're trying to create here. So I think it's a, a little bit of, yeah, a little marketing, a little branding. And then who are the key people, right, to, to fuel that uh, and, and move, move that forward? Thank you. No, thank you for the question. I actually talked to Alejandro while he was still in business school. So I remember really? him way back when. Yeah, he had already accepted, but I, I, I planted him in the committee before he even got here. <laughs> uh, Alejandro, where are you based? I'm based in Chicago. I went to Chicago booth, but in two months, my wife and I are moving to Miami. So I'm very excited. Oh, you are? Okay. Well, I look forward to welcoming you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Great. We have, a, we have a few more minutes. I'd love to have any more questions from the group. Um, I know that a lot of times folks on Fridays are taking these calls at an appointment or in the car. If you have a question you want to put in the chat, feel free. If there's anything else you want to ask Ernie while we're here, I'd love to hear some more uh, questions from the group. If not, I can. I don't want me to keep talking. Okay, Rodrigo, go ahead. Thanks, uh, thanks, AG, and uh, nice to meet you, uh, Ernie. So I'm uh, I'm in Houston. I work with uh, CPI, and I've met uh, AG for for now a couple of uh, well since I guess you started uh, AG. So my question is, and it's a follow up on the previous questions where we are talking about HLA as a whole, but this is more from your perspective, what would be a successful story to tell about diversity at AM? So just not only uh, HLA, but taking it to from a leadership perspective, what would you expect to see in the next couple of years AM go to um, uh, 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 as a firm from a diversity perspe perspective? Yeah, yeah. I, so I'm a big um believer in, in data. I mean, when, for example, when I deal with my ops people, especially on, on talent management, the data speaks for itself uh, or, you know, gives you a good idea. Uh, certainly we can track it by data in terms of, you know, the success we're having in, in recruiting, promotion and, and keeping, you know, uh, Hispanics here at the firm. I think the other part of this, which really to me is, is the, the best part 
if we can somehow track it is how do we connect the dots, right? Because having having Hispanics is fine, but how do we use that to our advantage? So how do we bring it together mm -hmm. in proposals? How do we bring it together for projects? How do we refer work to one another, regardless of what division we might in? That would be success for me because it's not just about the numbers. It's also about you know what those numbers could mean if we do it right. And I think success would, to, for us would be, you know, uh, looking at pitches and how many Hispanics are in the pitches. Also referring mm -hmm. work, you know, um, uh, that to me would be, you know, like the, the holy grail, if you will, uh, if we're able to get there. Gotcha. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you for the question. Rodrigo is the head of our uh, business development committee. So yeah, that's great. All right. You have another question? Oh, okay, you came back. I wasn't sure. Yeah. There was a follow up. Okay, let's take one more so we can wrap up uh, before the top of the hour in case anyone still has any meetings left on a Friday. Any more questions for Ernie? Okay, I will take that as that I did a great job having this discussion with you, Ernie. Great podcast um, host, by the way. <laughs> if, if I don't if I don't cut it as a consultant, I'll start a podcast after this. Right? There you go. There you go. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, I want to I want to thank you, Ernie, so much for the time. You've been a great sponsor. For those of you who don't know, I cold called Ernie a year ago and I said, hey, I'm starting a group called HLA. Will you be the executive sponsor? And without even hesitating, he said yes. Didn't know who I was. Didn't know anything. Well, I mean, I gave him a few minutes about it. You, right? said, you, were, but, you said you're from Miami. OK, so that, that, that's, that's, that was helped. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But then I said I went to Killian and you're like, Ooh, I don't know about that. No, right? Same same district, same district. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he, he's been a great supporter. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ernie. And for everyone that's part of the group, uh, he's been instrumental in everything we've been doing. He's been supporting us a lot in the background. So I wanted to acknowledge that and thank him. Thanks, everyone, for everything you're doing. And uh, if you have any questions, please reach out to us, to myself, anyone on the board. And um, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, AG. And Thanks, Ernie. Thanks, Ernie. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Cafecito so you never miss a new episode. Also, visit our website at alvarezandmarsal.com to learn more and to connect with us.